And let's open our Bibles again together this morning, this time to the book of Romans, chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, and I'm going to read and preach verses 22 through 29 this morning, where we see, as I said a minute ago, Paul's heart for both believers and unbelievers. We see his heart for his fellow believers in his desire to go to Rome and to Jerusalem. And we see his heart for unreached unbelievers in his desire to go to Spain. And as we look at what he says in these verses, which are basically about his travel plans to these particular places, my prayer is that God will use these verses to deepen and to strengthen our love for our fellow believers and for those unreached unbelievers. Our fellow believers, especially here in our local church, but all around the world as well, and for the unbelievers all around us, as well as those many unreached unbelievers in places around the globe that we talked about last week. And I think that's important for us to desire and to ask God to do in us because when we examine our hearts, when we look into our own hearts, we see that our love for others, sadly, is not always deep and strong. Sometimes it's quite shallow. Sometimes it's very weak. We see that our love for others is not the way that we have been loved by Christ. We don't love as we have been loved, and that's why we need a passage like the one before us this morning where we can see the Apostle Paul's heart for believers and for unbelievers and be challenged by that and be convicted by that, but also inspired and encouraged because the same God who changed Paul can change you and me, right? The same God who changed him can change us to change Paul from who he was before he was converted to who he is here in these verses. It's the same kind of transformation the Lord can work in you and in me. By his grace, we can grow in our love for our fellow believers near and far and for unbelievers near and far as well. So let's pray that he would do that and then we'll begin. Let's pray. God, we do pray that you would grow in each one of our hearts now a deeper and a stronger love for both believers and unbelievers like we see in the Apostle Paul here in these verses. Give us, please, the same kind of heart you gave Paul by your grace. And we pray for that in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 15, reading verses 22 through 29. These are the very words of God. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. 
For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. We're gonna work our way through these verses under the two headings there in your sermon notes. First, to Rome and Spain, verses 22 through 24, and then, but to Jerusalem first, verses 25 through 29. And again, we'll see Paul's heart for both believers and unbelievers, which by God's grace can increasingly become our heart for both believers and unbelievers. See what Paul says first about his travel plans to Rome and to Spain. Look again at verse 22. He says in verse 22, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. So he's never been to Rome to visit the believers there. And he's explaining to them why that is the case so they don't, they don't get the wrong idea. He says, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you, meaning this that I've just mentioned in the previous verses. It's because I've been preaching the gospel and planting churches in the east that I haven't yet been able to come out to you there in the west in Rome. It's because I've been fulfilling the ministry of the gospel of Christ in these other regions that I haven't been to your region. So he clarifies for them why he hasn't been out there yet to see them. But notice also that he points them to God's providence. He mentions being hindered from coming to them. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. And this is a use of what's called the divine passive. It's a passive verb. Paul has been hindered from coming to them. And it's a divine passive, at least that's what it's referred to, because God is implied to be the one performing the action, doing the hindering. Paul has been hindered by the providence of God from coming to these believers. Westminster Shorter Catechism number 11, summarizing scripture, asks what are God's works of providence And children, some of you may know the answer that God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. You may remember memorizing that. Great definition of God's providence. So God preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions by his most holy, wise, and powerful providence. And by the way, that is a great pillow, a soft, comfortable pillow for us to rest our heads on. No matter what our circumstances are, no matter what we are going through, we can trust the wisdom of God's providence, the goodness of God's providence in our lives. And God's providence included hindering Paul from going to Rome up to this point. Paul was providentially hindered, as we say, from coming to them. 
So he wants the believers in Rome to know that the reason he hasn't come to them yet is because of his work in other regions and because it wasn't God's plan to come to them yet. But, verse 23, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and as a foundation layer, he means, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. And here's where I think we can be challenged and encouraged by Paul's heart for both believers and unbelievers. First, in terms of his heart for believers, he says there in the middle of verse 23 that he has longed for many years to come to them And at the beginning of verse 24, he says, I hope to see you. And at the end of verse 24, he mentions enjoying their company for a while. He wants to see these believers and he wants to enjoy fellowship with these believers. And I think that can challenge us to consider and ask ourselves, is that my heart towards my fellow believers in Christ in other parts of the world but especially right here in our local church our fellow church members do I long to come to them do I hope to see them do I desire to enjoy fellowship with them to enjoy their company hopefully your answer is yes of course at least to some degree Because as a believer, as a Christian, your heart has been changed by Christ, by the gospel. You've been given a new heart, and that new heart loves God and loves God's people and being with God's people. But I would imagine your answer is also somewhat no, as an element of no. Not as much as I ought to, not as much as I want to. Like I said at the beginning, our love for our fellow believers is sometimes shallow instead of deep and weak instead of strong. And when that's the case, why is that the case? Well, it can be for any number of reasons. It can be because of selfishness. Our instinct, all of us, is to serve not God and others, but ourselves, our instinct in our flesh. That can be a reason we don't always long to be with fellow believers. It can also be because of worldliness. Perhaps there's a relationship with an unbeliever or friendships with unbelievers and we find ourselves wanting to be with them more than we want to be with the people of God. Find ourselves perhaps giving in to that tug of the world on our hearts. Sometimes we can lack this kind of heart that Paul had simply because we're shy and we're introverted. And it's not wrong to be shy or introverted, but for those of us who are like that, and I'm speaking from personal experience here, it can be easy at times to let our shyness or our introversion trump or override the call to love others. As a result, our desire to be with fellow believers can be weakened. It can be, it can be hard to long to be with others in that way. Physical difficulties can weaken our desire to be with fellow believers. Of course, physical difficulties can also strengthen those desires, especially if our physical condition prevents us from being able to come to corporate worship. Uh, 
But physical difficulties can also make it difficult to desire fellowship with fellow believers. Differences, disagreements can also make this hard. If there's been conflict, if there's been hurt, if there's, if there's tension, we may struggle to long to be together. We may struggle to enjoy one another's company. If we lack this longing and this desire to see each other and to enjoy fellowship with each other, it can be because there's unconfessed sin in our lives. Sin is antisocial. Sin likes to stay hidden, it likes to stay in the dark. And if we have unconfessed sin in our hearts, we're less comfortable being around the light and those who are walking in the light. Whatever the reasons are that our love for our fellow believers is sometimes shallow and weak, whatever the reasons are for you, whatever the reasons are in your own heart that this longing might be lacking, let's remember together that the gospel is bigger than all these things. That's a great hope. The gospel is bigger than all these things. And the power of God is stronger than all these things. And the grace of God is greater than all these things. And by God's grace, our hearts can become more like Paul's heart. We're not meant to be alone. We're meant to be in fellowship with one another. In the Garden of Eden, it was not good that the man should be alone. And in the body of Christ, that is still true. And if you think about it, God himself is not alone, as it were. He is a community of three persons in one Godhead. And we, as persons made in his image, are not meant to be alone. We're made for community. And as believers, we've been remade for community, the communion of saints in the body of Christ. And in the future, in glory, we won't be alone there. Uh, We will be together on the new earth. We will be together around the throne, worshiping the lamb. We together will always be with the Lord. This is what we have been made for and redeemed for. Paul longed to come to these believers. He hoped to see them. He desired to have fellowship with them. And by God's grace, we can have the same kind of heart towards each other. That's what God made us for. That's what Christ saved us for. So let's look forward to being together. Let's long to be with each other. Like young children longing to see their father return home from a long trip. Or perhaps like your dog is longing to see you when you get home from church today. Let's let's long to see each other. We have so many wonderful opportunities to see each other, don't we? Every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening in corporate worship. At our congregational prayer meeting on Wednesday nights or in a small group getting together informally in our homes over a meal or out at a restaurant or at a park or at a church event like the Fall Family Gathering on Friday night. We have so many opportunities that are available to us. So by God's grace, let's long to see each other and enjoy fellowship with each other as fellow believers like we see the Apostle Paul doing in these verses. We also see more briefly his heart for unbelievers in these opening verses. He says in verse 24, 
I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. So Spain is his target. He wants to go to Spain. Not to see the sights, but to see people come to Christ. Paul is a man on a mission, the mission God had given him, the grace given him by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. The ambition God had given him to preach the gospel where Christ had not yet been named so that those who have never heard will see and those who have never been told of him will understand. And here we see his heart for unbelievers, especially for unreached unbelievers. He wants to go to Spain so that he can reach the unbelievers in Spain with the gospel. And he hopes to be helped on his journey to Spain by the believers in Rome. He needs their support, probably financial support as well as relational support, Uh, prayer support for sure, perhaps even personnel support in the form of sending fellow workers to go with him. And this is actually one of the reasons he wrote the letter to the Romans. One commentator said that a primary reason for visiting Rome and for the writing of the letter is to solicit their support for his Spanish venture. So there's a sense in which the book of Romans is actually a support letter. It's much more than that, of course, but it's, it's not less than that. Paul wants the Christians in Rome to be aware of the gospel that he preaches, and he wants them to support him as he seeks to preach that gospel in regions beyond. Sometimes I think a, a wedge, a bit of a wedge is driven between doctrine and mission. So some Christians, some churches, even some whole denominations, can tend to be focused on doctrine at the expense of mission or the reverse at mission to the expense of doctrine. But in scripture, of course, doctrine and mission go together, right? And what better example of that could there be that the fact that arguably the most doctrinal book in the whole Bible was written for the purpose of garnering support for mission? Romans was written so that the Romans would support Paul's mission. Paul wants to reach the unreached unbelievers in Spain with the gospel. He wants them to hear and believe the gospel, the gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul has a heart for unbelievers. How about you? Do you have a heart for unbelievers? For all the unbelievers around you, for all the unbelievers all around the world? Again, I'm sure you do, but if you're like me, not as much as you'd like to. So let's be challenged again and encouraged by the example of Paul. Let's be helped and inspired by his heart. And let's pray that God would give us the same kind of heart he gave Paul, a heart for believers and for unbelievers. So Paul tells them that he hopes to see them on his way to Spain, but then he tells them that he's not coming to them right away because first he needs to go to Jerusalem so that he can bring to the saints there the collection that's been made for their relief. Notice what he says in verse 25. 
At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. So our first main point was to Rome and Spain. This is our second main point now, but to Jerusalem first. Paul tells them that before he comes to see them, he needs to go to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints there, that is to the believers who are living in Jerusalem. So here again, we see his heart for believers. And why did the saints in Jerusalem need aid? What was their situation? Well, Paul doesn't say, but we know from the book of Acts that there had been a famine, there had been a pretty significant famine, and maybe that brought about a significant enough amount of poverty among the believers there that they needed help from the outside, from outside the help they would be given in their local church community. And how is it that there was aid to bring to the saints? Paul says in verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. That's why there's a collection, because they've given contributions. And when he says Macedonia and Achaia, he's referring to Gentile believers primarily in places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth. And those Gentile believers wanted to make a contribution to help the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. The contribution was for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. It wasn't for all the poor in Jerusalem. It was for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. That reminds us of the biblical concept that we do have a general obligation to the poor among the general population to be compassionate and generous towards our fellow man. But we have a special obligation to the poor among the saints to be compassionate and generous toward our fellow believers because we're family. And notice also that it says that they were pleased to make a contribution. Paul reiterates that in the next verse, that they were pleased to do so. It doesn't say they were squeezed to make a contribution. They were pleased to make a contribution. It doesn't say they were hounded or pressured or manipulated to make a contribution. No, they were pleased to do it. As it says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In fact, let's, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 for just a, a minute. Or you can just listen as I read. 2 Corinthians, let's turn to chapter 8. It's just two books to the right of Romans, 2 Corinthians. And I want to read select verses from chapter 8 and chapter 9 because this is where Paul talks about this contribution at length that the Gentiles made on behalf of the Jewish believers. Uh, this would be a good couple of chapters to sit down and read this afternoon, perhaps, a good Lord's Day afternoon activity. But let me start reading at chapter 8, verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 4 to begin. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." That's pretty amazing. So they gave in the midst of their affliction. 
And Paul says that they gave in the midst of their own extreme poverty. They gave out of an abundance of joy and there was a wealth of generosity on their part. They gave of their own accord. And they begged Paul earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That's what the gospel does to someone. That's what the gospel does to a people, a church. That's what the gospel's done to us. It makes us generous because of the generosity of Christ. Verse nine is well known. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And of course that's the ultimate motivation in our giving, isn't it? We give because of all we've been given by Christ. Skip down to chapter nine, verse five, and I'll read the remainder of the chapter. Chapter nine, verse five. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So this is not a tax, this is a gift. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Back to Romans. Notice what Paul says at the beginning of verse 27. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. What Paul's just been talking about in 2 Corinthians, they they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, to these Jewish Christians. So they did it because it was their duty, and they also did it because it was their delight. Duty and delight are friends, not enemies. They, they go together in the Bible. Our duty should be our delight. It should be our delight to do our duty to both God and man. If you think about it, it wouldn't have been right for these believers to give, but reluctantly, begrudgingly. The funds would have been raised, but it wouldn't have been right. God doesn't just want givers. 
He wants cheerful givers. It's not a win if our church budget here is in the black, but we've all given reluctantly. It's a win if we give cheerfully, even if our budget's in the red. God wants cheerful givers. We wanna be pleased to give because of all we've been given. Paul says that these Gentile believers owe it to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Why, why is that the case? Second half of verse 27. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. And that's a principle mentioned elsewhere in scripture. For example, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Or Galatians 6, verse 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And think of how significant this would have been for the body of Christ, for the church. For Gentile Christians, to help Jewish Christians. And for those Jewish Christians to receive that help from Gentile Christians. This would have had, no doubt, a huge and lasting impact on their unity. On the bond of their fellowship, their communion, their their love, their joy. And may the same be the case with us. So Paul tells them that he's He's gonna go to Jerusalem first to bring aid to the saints and then he's gonna come to them in Rome. Verse 28, he wraps up by saying, when therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Meaning probably Christ will bless me and Christ will bless you. Christ will bless us together with the fullness of his blessing. Kind of like he said back in chapter one, verses 11 and 12, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. When I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Well, let me mention two more things as we draw to a close this morning. First of all, my how Paul has changed. My how Paul has changed. He went from traveling all over to persecute the saints to traveling all over to bring aid to the saints. He went from having a heart full of pharisaical pride and self-righteousness to having a heart full of Christ-like love and compassion and grace towards believers and unbelievers. Think of the Saul we meet in Acts 7 who oversaw the execution of Stephen compared to the Paul we meet in this passage. He's a different man. God had changed his heart by the power of the gospel. And like I said at the beginning, the same God who changed Paul can change you and me. We may not have quite the before and after story Paul does. Maybe we do. But regardless, 
God can change us and make us new. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you aren't who you once were. Some of us more dramatically so than others. But all of us started out dead in our sin and are now alive in Christ. All of us were lost but now are found. We're blind but now see. All of us were on our way to hell but now we're on our way to heaven by the grace of God. We were enemies of God, but now we're his friends. Our chief end was to glorify ourselves and to enjoy ourselves forever. But now our chief end is to glorify God, to enjoy God forever. We've changed. We've been changed. God has changed us. To him be the glory. And by his grace and power, he can change us still. He can, he can make us more like Jesus. Amen. And therefore, secondly and finally, I encourage us to pray for a heart for believers and unbelievers. A heart for believers to see them and to enjoy fellowship with them and a heart for unbelievers to see them come to Christ and join the fellowship of believers. Pray for a heart like Paul's heart. And you know what I think the secret was for Paul? It's actually not a secret. It's in Philippians chapter one, verse seven, or verse eight rather. He says this, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all, Similar to Romans, I I long to see you. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. See, Paul's heart for believers, and for unbelievers for that matter, was really Christ's heart for believers and unbelievers. Christ's heart was pumping in Paul's chest, as it were. As he says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Paul says. And that is true of every believer. It is no longer we who live, It's Christ who lives in us and through us by his spirit. And it is Christ's own heart for the lost and the found that is pumping in our chests as he empowers us by his spirit to love our fellow believers and our fellow man. So pray for a heart like Paul's and pray for a heart like Christ's. Let's do that now together, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the great love you have for the people you've made and for the special love you have for the people you've redeemed by your blood on the cross. And we pray that you would give us 
more and more of that same kind of love. Enlarge our hearts. Help us to be inspired and encouraged by Paul's example here in this passage. And most of all, we thank you that you live in us, empowering us every day by your spirit. Jesus, make our hearts more like yours. We pray in your name, amen. Let's take just a minute now to think and pray about what we've heard and to ask God to give us a heart for believers and for unbelievers, like the heart of Paul, like the heart of Christ.